You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I know you're going to be thrilled to hear this, but turn to Romans 3, 27. (laughs) Amen. I thought you'd be really excited. We have, I know, slowed down significantly for a few weeks and and, uh, might be good to regroup and think about where we're at here in, in, in Romans. Paul has written this uh, long letter to uh, Christians in Rome because uh, in chapter 1 it says he desired to go there. He wanted to go and visit them. Uh, God had given Paul the, the charge to take the gospel to the Gentiles and Rome was uh, the center of the, the ancient world. And uh, Paul's hoping to get to Rome and maybe establish a base camp there and, and uh, to which to go out to further, to the ends of the earth uh, with the gospel. And he's hoping to build a partnership with them. So that's one of the reasons he's writing this letter. Another reason, though, I think is, is uh, there's some tensions in the church uh, here in Rome. And we get hints of those tensions uh, in perhaps those who are not fully understanding the gospel so there's a great effort made by Paul to clarify that, and, and also hints of tensions between some members in the church, but particularly between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Um, Paul wants them to understand, I think in writing this important letter, that, that the solution to every problem in the Christian life and in the Christian church is the gospel. It must begin there. It, it must continue there. Ferguson notes this, things tend to go wrong in our lives and in our fellowship together in the church when we lose sight of the grace, glory, and power of the gospel. I think that's exactly right. So in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul speaks of the power of the gospel for all who believe. And uh, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20 He has expressed to us why we need the gospel so much in our lives, because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul shares the beautiful solution to that, which is the justification of God, uh, that we are saved uh, by... Uh, by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone, and we've spent several weeks talking about that. So as he might imagine, as Paul is reading, this letter is read to the church, it would, uh, which is how it would have been, uh, that there may have been some objections to some of what Paul is teaching here, and uh, Paul anticipates those objections in chapter 3, verse 27. People may be raising questions, Paul just goes ahead and raises the questions uh, that people might be raising And uh, that's what we read here, chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Father, please help us in these moments as we have heard your word. And now as we hear it explained, we invite you by your spirit 
to apply these truths to our hearts and lives. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today, that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. It's been a few years back that I ran across this story by uh, a lady named Rebecca DeFries. And uh, Rebecca was a high-level executive at that time who was traveling throughout the country um, basically as a consultant for Fortune 500 companies. So this is a, she's a high-powered kind of educated ex- executive. And uh, she reached the airport one day in her travels and her flight was delayed. And uh, being the type A person that she is, she'd always had a book with her and, but, uh, to read in those cases. But she was hungry, so she went to the gift store there in the airport, bought herself a package of cookies. And uh, she went um, and uh, found a seat in the corner uh, with a seat next to her open. And uh, so she, she uh, set those uh, cookies down and, uh, in the empty chair next to her, and she picked up a book. And she hardly could wait that she got reading into her book and, and uh, that the man sitting next to her uh, picked up the package of cookies and opened it and took a cookie out of it. And she thought to herself, what, what, what gall? Uh, she was amazed that somebody would, would do this. And so without saying a word, she kind of picked up the package of cookies and she took a cookie out and ate it. And she kind of looked at him. And then to her amazement, he picked it up again and took another cookie. And he looked at her, and then she very dramatically picked up the package of cookies and took a cookie out and stared at him while she ate it. And this went on until all the cookies were gone, and thank goodness that her flight was called so she could get away from this uh, cookie moocher in the airport. But when she boarded the plane and sat down and, and buckled her seatbelt, and she reached into her purse to find a tissue, and there was her unopened package of cookies. One of the reasons that the gospel repels people is that it, it strikes at the heart of our pride. And, and you could say that all of us have uh, some of this proverbial cookie monster living in us, uh, that we are always right. And if it were wrong, it's somebody else's fault, it wasn't ours. Um, and, and that kind of pride is, I think that's why pride is considered the root of all sin. It strikes at the core of that. Pride causes people to stumble over this idea of of the gospel message. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about pride and mere Christianity. He said, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. Pride. He says, he goes on, essentially competitive, uh, competitive by its very nature, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, more clever, or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally those things, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. That's true, isn't it? A little bit later on, he writes this. Other vices may bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. 
And not just between people, but enmity to God. That's so true. It's the reason why James wrote in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To receive the message of the gospel, to believe it, uh, to take it into your heart and commit your will to following Christ strikes a blow to our pride. It means that we must acknowledge before God that we are sinful. So sinful, in fact, that that it took not just a little bit of God's mercy, but it, it took Him sending His only Son to die a horrible death on the cross to pay for our sins so that He could forgive us. So sinful we are, the Scripture says, that we have absolutely nothing to contribute to our salvation. No one is worthy of it. No one has any merit. No one can work for it. No one deserves this. There's no family heritage that, that, that would lend itself to you receiving this. We receive it only by means of faith, and it is only by the grace of God that we are saved. That's so hard to accept. It's hard because of our pride. It hinders that, uh, our, the gospel in our lives, and it hinders our relationships with others. The Jewish believers here in the congregation at Rome, I think we're struggling with this, and we get hints of it throughout the letter, and we get hints of it today. It seems that they were very conscious about the fact that they were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, It it was to the Jews, right? Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, that uh, God had given His special uh, covenant, his, relation, his revelation to them. It says in chapter 3, verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Very true. But it was their pride that was causing tension in the church with the, the Gentile believers. The Jews were boasting over their Jewish heritage, and, and perhaps they were arguing that they had a better standing with God than the Gentiles. But what the Jews had forgotten was that the blessings of the promises were not intended for the exclusion of Gentiles, but rather to be a blessing to the Gentiles, right? In the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, it said that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed. But pride is a powerful and blinding sin. And so Paul seems to be addressing some of these things here in this particular text as he's wants us to think about what are the implications of this doctrine we've been talking about, justification by faith alone. How does this play out practically in our lives? What difference does it it make? You'll notice there are several questions here, and some he gives answers to, and some are rhetorical questions, but but they're all short answers. And and the reason, I think, is that Paul is going to come back in chapter 4 and give us the longer answers. So just a quick survey, real quick. Verse 27, Paul anticipates that some people might ask if uh, by believing in justification by faith alone, what becomes of our boasting? That's the question. What becomes of our boasting if we believe what you've been saying, Paul? And Paul gives a short answer here, verses 27 and 28. He's going to give a longer answer in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, using the illustration of Abraham. Chapter, uh, verse 29 and 30. Paul asked, is God the God of the Jews only? He gives a short answer here. This is a short version, but in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul's going to give a longer answer. And then in verse 31, do we overthrow the law by this faith? That's the question he asks, and he gives a very short answer, but the longer answer is in chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. So this morning, I want us to look at the shorter answers first. 
And uh, I, I, I don't want to disappoint you. Just because they're shorter answers does not mean it'll be a shorter sermon. But that, you, you'll be okay. By God's grace, we will all endure. Amen? The first point Paul wants us to make, uh, wants to make to us is that justification by faith humbles sinners. It humbles sinners. And we've already touched on this, but look, notice what he says. Then what becomes of our boasting? Here's the simple answer. It's excluded. Well, by what kind of law? By, what, by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's unpack that just for a moment. Why does Paul ask the question, what becomes of our boasting? Begin, because I think the answer is because it gets at the heart of why the gospel is so hard to believe and, and, and receive. It's our pride. There's some evidences that this was one of the Apostle Paul's great struggles in, in trusting in the gospel himself. Uh, because we, we, we read in, in, and we've heard his testimony a few places in the New Testament where he talks about all that he had to boast about in life. Uh, for example, you're familiar with this, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul's own, his own testimony. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. I got all kinds of reasons to boast. If you think you got some, Paul says, I got more. And apparently Paul struggled with this, and this, this very, it, it may have been part of the very sin that led him to his need for, for Christ. I was reading uh, Sinclair Ferguson on this again this week, and I think he's right. It seems that Paul is saying something like this. You know, as I look back and I know that there was not another individual in all of Jerusalem, certainly not another of my own generation, Paul says, who had as much to boast about as I had to boast about. But then one day, Paul met Stephen. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, you remember that story? Stephen who was stoned to death and his garments laid, people laid their garments at, at Paul's feet. He was there that day. And it seems like uh, perhaps that in Stephen, Paul saw something of which he did not have. As Stephen is being stoned to death, you remember, he's worshiping God, he's praying, and he's saying, don't, don't hold this sin against this people. It's an amazing kind of a testimony. And it, it may be the reason why Paul says later on in Romans 7 that the commandment, do not covet, came to his own life with such force and conviction because Paul was coveting what Stephen had but what Paul himself did not have and could not have apart from Christ. God worked on Paul through that, and then Christ, of course, came to him on the Damascus road and saved him. But again, there's this sense of pride in all of us. It's the pride that we saw in the uh, Pharisee in the temple who's praying, you know, God, thank, thank you, I'm not like the tax collector over here, this, this loser of a guy. And, but let's be honest, it's not just the, the, gent, the Jewish problem. This is a human problem, isn't it? It's in all of us. And what Paul is reminding us of here, that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our salvation is by God alone, and therefore none of us have a reason to boast. 
Nobody can, can say anything. The only thing that we have to boast about is the graciousness of God, that He would ever come to a wretched sinner like us. And the, and the more that you come to grips with this, the more you forget about yourself and you turn your attention to Christ. So Paul is saying here, in light of this incredible gospel, what becomes of our boasting? What is the short answer, he said? It's excluded. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no reason for it. There's no basis for it. Look at how he follows up with the question there in verse 27. He says, by what kind of law? I think what he means by that is what kind of principle do you base that on? And does he say, by a law of works? Verse 27. Is it the principle of works where you and I work for salvation? Is that what we base, base this? No, that's not it. He says, but the law of faith. It's the principle of faith. We're the means by which we receive God's grace. And then he says it plainly, verse 28. For we hold one is justified, one is saved by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, our salvation is all on the basis of someone else's work. And it's not our work, it's the work of Jesus. In some ways, you could say this morning, we could all say together, yes, we're saved by works, but it wasn't our works. It was His work. Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' righteousness, His substitutionary death, His glorious resurrection, we are saved. There is nothing to boast about in ourselves. Paul would later say in Galatians, it is far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of every true believer in Christ. So justification by faith humbles us. It leaves us no room for boasting. You are not saved this morning because you are smarter than somebody else. You are not saved this morning because, well, you're just so much moral and you're so much better and, and you're here in the church and that's why God had favor on you. No, that's not it at all. You are not saved this morning because you happen to figure this out and everybody else out in the world is dumb. You are saved. I am saved only by the grace of God. That's all it is. And we must never forget this, church. You can see, secondly, then, why justification by faith unites believers. Why this is a source of our unity as a church. Because there are no special classes of people here. There are no distinctions. Notice how Paul explains it, verse 29. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Short answer, <laughs> yes, he is also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. No, think about what he's saying. Are there two different gods? That's what he's telling the church there in Rome. You think there's a God of the Jews and a God of the Gentiles? Of course not. There's one God, he says. And since that's true, there's only one way of salvation for all people. What is that way? He says it. The God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The circumcised is just another way to refer to the Jewish people. How are the Jewish people saved? How is a Jew saved? Paul says it right here. They're saved by being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. How are the uncircumcised people? That's everybody else. That's the Gentiles. That's you and me. How are we saved? Verse 30, through faith in Christ alone. So, so there's one God and there's one salvation for all people. There is not one way for the Jew to be right with God and then a different way for the Gentile to be. That's not it at all. We're both saved by faith alone in Christ alone. 
And you understand what Paul's doing here. He's fleshing this out for them. He's helping us to see that if justification by faith is alone is true, then there can be no classes or levels of believers. Nobody is more saved than someone else. No one can claim that. Lawson explains it like this. All who are justified are equally justified. Equally saved. No one is more justified than another. All believers are imputed with the same righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why is he putting so much emphasis on this, on justification by faith? Church, it's this. He knows that it is the only doctrine that can unite a church. It's the only doctrine that can unite a church. The doctrine, this doctrine humbles every human being to equal ground. We sometimes say it like this, this is a great phrase. The, the, the ground is level at the foot of the at the cross. It's level here. It's level. There are no distinctions between those who put their trust in Christ. Jews and Gentiles are lost in their sins. Both of them need Christ, and when they trust in Christ, they are, they are one together. There's one body of Christ, one way of salvation. Justification unites us all. It's very important today in the world that we live in because it's very fractured in case you haven't noticed. And there's fractures in the church as well, even the body of Christ. These are, these are precious doctrines that we stand for. There are precious doctrines that have brought us together today that we, that we hold to, such as the Scriptures alone are our faith and our guide. We believe that. We look to that. But justification... By faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God. These are at the core of our convictions. And it matters not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with one another. These things bring us together, church. Christopher Ashe illustrates uh, this uh, like this and warns us, I think, of the dangers of when we lose sight of this. He says, let me introduce you to Mr. X. Mr. X has not really grasped that he's been put right with God 100% by grace. Mr. X is very aware of his religious heritage. He and God go way back together. He comes from a Christian family that has been going to church for years. He has an honored place on the church council. He knows his Bible. He's been baptized. What is more, his life is pretty much together. He's morally upright and considers himself a pillar in the church. Because he thinks about all this, two things happen. On the one hand, Mr. X can't help but notice that he is on a higher spiritual level than some in the church. And some of their lives are messed up, or at least more messed up than him. And they don't know their Bible as well as he does. And Mr. X, he can't help boasting a little bit. Though he may not boast publicly, he boasts to himself. And on the other hand, though, Mr. X is, is a bit insecure because he bases his standing with God partly on his achievements and heritage, and, and he can't help but be a little anxious about all this. Uh, Ash continues, there are deeds, words, and thoughts in his life that he wouldn't want projected on the screen at the church and so alongside his boasting he's never quite comfortable in his spiritual skin he's always grasping for acceptance grasping for influence grasping for leadership in the church christopher uh, ash goes on then there's mrs why 
who thinks more of what she's done for the church than what Jesus has done for her. And he talks about how both of these attitudes are so detrimental. He says, indeed, Mr. X and Mrs. Y are part of a large spiritual family, and they have cousins in every church. Now, if we're honest today, we're all cousins. Amen? What happens to a church with Mr. X and Mrs. Y's families spreading throughout the church? This kind of thinking. Paul knows. And and you know as well, there's disunity, isn't there? There's discord, there's pride, there's mistrust. And the only answer is the gospel. The only way to slay that kind of pride is to come over and over and over again to the cross of Jesus Christ. To this reality that I am saved by faith alone. One God, one way to salvation. Definitely not me, only by Him. And I will boast only in the cross of Christ. That's what puts that to death. Justification by faith unites believers. It humbles sinners. Third, justification by faith encourages obedience. Encourages obedience. Paul anticipates one final objection there in verse 31. Do do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There's a lot to this, and we'll spend much more time in chapter 4 on this, but the charge against Paul here about that our salvation is by faith alone is that somehow Paul is uh, encouraging disobedience. That he's saying that the Old Testament law and the standard that God has set, is, it doesn't matter, it's not true. By declaring salvation to be of faith, not of obedience, that Paul was actively encouraging disobedience. And notice how Paul responds. He says, by no means. That's the strongest way to say no, by the way, in, in, the, in, the, in the Greek text. It means absolutely not. It means uh, no, uh, not just no, but a thousand times no. It means no, not ever. By no means. He says, justification by faith upholds the law, it establishes the law. And what he means here, just in short, is that a person who has been justified, who's been saved by God, will desire to live an obedient life. That's part of the transformation. And if a person is not striving to live a righteous life according to God's Word, then that failure proves that he or she has not been saved. Paul, we'll look at this again in Romans 8. Let me just, a couple of verses there. Romans 8, 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, just listen. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a lot there, and we'll look at it when we get there, but, the, but don't miss the main thing, which is the plain thing. And what he's saying is that the law that once crushed you to death, it crushed you to death because you recognized at some point that you could not keep it. 
And it brought conviction on your life because you could not keep this law. You were a sinner in need of of grace. But that very law that crushed you one time, once you are saved, is now the very thing that you delight to obey. You want to obey this. And this way, Paul says, justification by faith upholds the law. This is what happened to you, Christian. This is what happened. Think of the change that Christ has brought in your life. It's not just an external change, but one of your heart in which your desires have been transformed, where you want to live for Christ. None of this by your own doing. We're about to sing in just a moment this wonderful confession. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. You see, church, when that truth of that bears down on you, your pride and your boasting, it just dissolves. It just goes away. And I tell you, your attitude is not, and when that truth bears down on you, your attitude is not, I I think I want to go out and sin some more. Oh, no. Your, your, Your attitude is, if Jesus did this for me, I want to give my life to Him. I want to obey Him in everything. Not because I think it's going to earn me something. That's not it at all. But because of what He's done for me. I want to live for Him. Do you see how justification by faith is the key to all of that? How it humbles us as sinners and keeps us humble. How it brings us together as believers. It unites us together. And how it encourages us to live for God to obey His Word. Have you come to Christ by faith? Has God done this work in you? Has He changed you? If you stop and think about it, what you boast in will reveal the answer to that question. May it be said of all of us that we will boast in nothing except Jesus Christ and His cross. Let's bow together for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus. Thank you that you've done this amazing work in in justifying us, declaring us righteous through Jesus. But you have not done this work for, for aught, Lord. You've done this to transform us and change us so that we would be humbled so that we would be united, so we would be encouraged to live for you and you would get all of the glory. We pray that you would continue that work in our hearts and lives as we sing this song uh, about your, your great love for us. Lord, move in our hearts again. Drive these truths home. Uh, that we might be changed and become more like Christ. And if there's someone today that does not know Jesus, and uh, they're boasting perhaps in themselves or in their works or in their religion, 
Um, Lord, work in their heart to, to see today that the cross of Jesus is their only hope and therefore their only boast. And may they trust in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.